Good morning. Good morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, find in yours 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The 14th chapter in 1 Corinthians. Yes. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And then we'll, we'll yeah, chapter 14, I'm sorry. This morning we're going to begin a brand new series. And we're going to do so asking this question. Are there any commands given to the local church that are at greater risk of being disobeyed in a larger church setting? Let me, let me repeat that question. Are there any commands given to the local church that are at greater risk of being disobeyed in a larger church setting. Here's another question. If someone asked you to describe church by only using your Bible, what would that church look like? If, if someone said to you, if someone said to you, well, but that's too generic. Yeah. Get specific. What what would it look like? What what would a small cities? Well, yes. there's so many things. It's not a one statement well, answer. Right. Uh, that's why we're going to have a series. <laughs> it's it's not that simple. I, I I dare say many people, if they were asked that question, if they felt the need to give an answer immediately, would probably start to describe the church they attend, assuming that the church they attend. Is biblical. They probably would do that. Now, here's, here's what we're going to learn in this series. Nothing can be done elsewhere, biblically speaking, that cannot be done in the home. Nothing can be done elsewhere, biblically speaking, that cannot be done in the home. Now, here, now this is more important. There are some things that can be done in the home that cannot be done elsewhere. If that's true, and it is, we need to look at six subjects in this series. Number one, what are the commands given to the local church? And then, of course, if if God commands you to do something and you don't do it, what do we call that? Sin. Sin. So right off the bat, we need to take this series seriously. You know, are there any commands given to the local church that are at greater risk of being disobeyed in a larger church setting? We better take whatever those commands are seriously because we've just acknowledged disobedience is sin. Number two, motivation. Motivation. Motivation has to find its way in this series as we begin to ask the question, are there any commands given? And here's why I bring motivation into it. When Paul writes to the Philippians, he says there are some that preach from selfish ambition. Does that sound like motivation to you? Do, do you think there are men in ministry that are in ministry and they have selfish ambition? And do you think it's at all possible that there are some, not all, I mean, I, I, it wouldn't be right to just paint people with a big brush, uh, 
a broad brush. But but do you think there are some men in ministry that their objective is to get big? It is to have a large setting, right? <laughs> Number three, the advantages of the home versus a mar- much larger gathering place. Number four, is bigger better for the congregant? Number five, God's money. God's money. Are, are we to be stewards of God's money, good stewards of his money? What is at risk with respect to the commands given to the church, with respect to God's money, that are at greater risk of being disobeyed in a larger church setting? Here's what we're going to learn. There are two things that God wants his money invested in. The gospel and and men in ministry. The gospel and men in ministry. If if you really, if we're going to stick to the, the, the original question, which is, if someone asked you to describe church using only the Bible, what would you say? If we're going to just use, how many here agree with me, we ought to use the Bible in answering biblically based questions. The church is in the Bible. We, we probably ought to consult the Bible in, in asking and answering these questions. Here, here's, a, here's a tough one that's going to be difficult to answer, but I think it's important. Number six, how to know when you're too big? I mean, I mean, is there such a thing as knowing when you're too big? Here's how you're going to know when you're too big. Are you ready? Are we violating any of the commands because of size? Has the size of a congregation in any way interfered with the commands because of the size? Because of the motivation? I remember when my mother, I don't know how many of you, any of you do any garage sailing? You go do that? My mother went to a garage sale and bought a piece of furniture. And this piece of furniture had layers upon layers of paint on it. And she brought it home, and she started to sand it, and and that was a tedious task. And and once she got down to the bare bone of what it originally looked like, my grandmother said to her this. She says, who would do such a thing to such a beautiful piece of furniture? I wonder if the church, as we are more inclined to know it, I wonder if the church has a whole lot of layers on it. (laughs) And I wonder if we were to strip away the layers, if we might discover what the church really ought to look like. And what are those layers? What are those layers? What have we added that is potentially distorted the original intent of what the church can be. How can we know a layer when we see one? Hopefully this series will reveal a layer when we see one. Now we've planted a church. We started a church, right? It's called Living Word Bible Church. And it meets in whose home? Bob and Lona's, right? I would venture to say for many Christians, this is odd. 
a church that meets in a home. But listen to these verses. Romans 16 and 5, likewise, greet the church that is in the house of Prisca and Aquila. It could read, likewise, greet the church that is in the house of Babylon. Romans 16 and 23, Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church, greet you. They met in Gaius' house. Colossians 4 and 15, give my greetings to the brothers of Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Philemon 2, I write to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. 1 Corinthians 16 and 19, the churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house. The churches of Asia. Now, when you see Asia in the Bible, I don't want you to think of China, okay, because that that's not what we're talking about. That's not the geographical location of Asia in the Bible. Uh, it's really a, a Roman peninsula, proconsul. Ephesus is there. And, and the churches of Asia are those seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Those are the churches in Asia in terms of biblical territory, not our map that we, we might look at. All seven of those churches in Revelation 2 and 3, they all met in homes. Here's how we know. Listen carefully. Acts 20. You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly Anyone know the rest? And from house to house, house to house. The churches in Asia met in homes. Seven of them. Paul was their teacher. Think about that. One teacher teaching seven house churches. One teacher teaching seven house churches. Notice in the Bible, churches met where? In homes, right? Why homes? Why homes? Well, we've got to go back to Israel's beginnings. If we, if we really want to know why homes, in my father's house, right? I mean, he even, he even describes heaven in, 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 in house language. But listen to what Moses, how many know about the Passover? We know about that? Listen to what Moses commanded the Jewish people in Exodus 12 and 46. He says it is to be eaten in a single house. Now the Passover is big to the Jewish people. What's another day in the week of a Jew that's big? What's it called? Sabbath. Listen to this, Bob. Luke 14 and 1. One Sabbath, Jesus was having dinner in the home of an important Pharisee. God commanded the Jewish people to celebrate the Sabbath in the home. Listen, Exodus 16. See that the Lord hath given you the Sabbath, and for this reason on the sixth day he giveth you a double provision. Let each man stay at home, and let none go forth out of his place the seventh day. And the people kept the Sabbath on the seventh day. 
Where did he command them to have the Sabbath? Where were they to stay? At home. That's a command, right? Let each man stay at home. Where do Jewish people normally go on the Sabbath? Synagogue. Synagogue. Where did they get that? Aren't they supposed to do that on Friday? Well, that's the Sabbath. Friday night, sundown, oh, Friday yeah. night. But they go Friday, like, and then Friday night they got to sundown, they got to be at home. Saturday. And they're supposed to stay home for the whole Sabbath. They're not. They're not supposed to leave their home on the Sabbath. God never commanded them to build a synagogue. He never commanded them to build a synagogue. Now, now let me just say this. They only needed a place for the sacrifice, but other than that... Well, we're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. They, God never commanded them to build or build a synagogue. Now, let me just pause there and make a point. There's nothing wrong with the synagogue. There's nothing wrong with the Jewish people if they choose to have a building away from home for the Jewish people to come together to do the sort of things that maybe they would like to do together. Nothing wrong with it unless what? It Say that again, Rafael. Breaks the rules, right? Breaks the law. And so the very reason why they go to the synagogue, one of those reasons, ends up violating the command. Now listen, nothing wrong with a church building. I don't care how small it is. I don't care how large it is. Nothing wrong with the church building at all. Unless it what? Unless it breaks a law. Unless it violates a command of God. Well, it is the people, right? But we got we to dig deep into the mindset of why people do the things they do and, and what lies behind the disobedience. Have we invented so many layers? Has the church invented things to do and things to be? Like programs that the Bible knows nothing about. And then we invent these programs and they can't be done in the home. They they, they just can't be done in the home. We need a much bigger place for them to, to take place. And so we invent church buildings to accommodate our programs. Never asking the question, has this become a layer? Have we added another layer and another layer and another layer that on the surface, in and of themselves, appear innocent? But have all these layers created such a stain that we don't really know anymore what's supposed to lie behind? Is that possible? Let me ask two questions. Number one, why did God command the Jewish people to build a very large and expensive temple? Number two, why did he not command the church to build a very large and expensive church building? The answer to those two questions is inextricably linked. Inextricably linked. Listen to the description of the temple that he had Solomon build. It's 180 feet long. The ceiling, I should say, is 180 feet long. It's 90 feet wide. It's 50 feet high. The point is, it's huge. And it was expensive. Listen to this. 3,000 tons of gold went into it. 30,000 tons of silver. 
Now, what made the temple so much more than something huge and expensive is what? Who was there? God was there, right? Speaking of Solomon's temple, 1 Kings 8, it happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord. What, what did he call the temple? The what? The house of the Lord. See, house and home is all over the place in the Bible. The, the question is, we have to know when it's talking about a literal house, a literal home, <laughs> right? And a figure of speech. Now listen, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The temple is the house of the Lord where God fills it. Now there's a couple of observations from the verses I just read. Number one, the temple is called God's holy place. Can we keep that somewhere? It's his holy place, right? The temple. Number two, God fills the temple with his presence, right? Okay, now I'm going to, with those two things in mind, what if I told you God does the same thing for the church? Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. You see, when we make the transition from Israel in Jerusalem to the church that is global, it ceases to be about a place, and it's all about a people. God filled the house. God filled the <coughs> temple. Where did the Corinthians meet? In whose house? Prisca and Aquila's home, right? And God filled that house with his presence. And God filled that house with his holiness. And that's what we're to be. Did you know the church is huge and expensive? Right? The temple in Jerusalem was huge and expensive. The church is huge and expensive. The difference is we're not building a building per se. We're building a church. We're building a people. And why would I say that the church is expensive? What did it take to have a church? We were not purchased, Peter said, with what? Silver, but with what? Blood. That, that's expensive, folks. I mean, we, we can't get any more expensive than being bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And huge? For the last 2,000 years, all over the world, this thing called the temple of God. And you are. Paul said to the Corinthians, and you are. You is in the plural. In other words, you, Corinthians, collectively, corporately, as a local church, you are the temple of God. The temple of God is in this room right now. Right now, right here. When every one of us leaves, guess what? Living Word Bible Church walks out the door. And, and forgive me, Bob and Lona, this just, become, this just becomes a condo, right? It, it just becomes a family room in a condo. But when we're here, 
things change. All of a sudden, something different takes place. It's not about a place anymore. It's about a, a people. Now, what if I told you when the church was born, she was born in a house? And what if I told you both saved people and sanctified people are saved and sanctified in a home? That is, they preach the gospel in the home. And they also taught the saved in a home. What if I told you the very first church born in a house planted more house churches? Let me read those three questions again. Number one, what if I told you when the church was born, she was born in a home? And what if I told you that they saved people and sanctified people, that is, they evangelized and they edified in the home? And what if I told you that the first church, which was born in a house, when about starting other house churches, what would you say? Would anybody say this? Maybe we should act like the, the church in the, in the book of Acts. You've heard me say that before, right? Acting like the church in the book of Acts. Maybe, just maybe, we ought to you know, sandpaper the layers away and start to ask the question, if somebody said to you, describe church only using your Bible, what would that church look like? The church was born in a house. Listen to this, Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing, rushing wind, and it what? Anyone know it? It filled the entire house. God's presence filled the house. Sound familiar? God's presence filled what house in First Kings? The temple, the house of the Lord. And, and the first church that was born in a home, Peter preached. Do you remember how many got saved? Three thousand. You know what that? You know what that? You know what that tells me, right? The, the temple's beginning to be built. The, the temple's getting big. I mean, we're starting off right away, getting big. Three thousand saved. So, what did the apostles do with such a large congregation? What would we do if 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 Bob Maestri went out in Darien? stood up high and started preaching the gospel, 3,000 got saved. What do you think would be the first inclination of the modern millennial church? What would they do? we got to get a building, right? We need a huge building. Where are we going to put all these folks? Let me read what they did. Acts 2, 46 and 47. Same chapter when they preached and 3,000 got saved. It says, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They went from house to house. Listen to Acts 5 and 42. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus Christ. You got this picture in your mind? Peter preaches. 3,000 people get saved. 
And they're not looking to build some building. They're not even being commanded to build some building. They're just going from house to house. But what houses do you think they may have visited? You think it's possible they visited the houses of the 3,000? Do you think they started to rub shoulders at all with maybe the family members of the 3,000? They taught in homes. They, they preached in homes. They had fellowship in the home. And, and did you hear a word I read in there with simplicity of heart? You, you know, I'll never forget my first sales position with Prudential. My first day of training. Jim Dietz. I still remember. I can close my eyes and see him going to the chalkboard writing K-I-S-S. And I had no idea where he was going because it was the first time I ever heard, keep it simple, stupid. Simplicity of heart. The church ought to keep it simple. You know who keeps the church simple? Let me tell you the kind of Christian that keeps the church simple. They don't think they have a snowball's chance in hell of improving upon what God has said in his word. That They really believe that the way God has orchestrated the church, the things that he has written, the things that he has commanded, I'm just going gonna, gonna to keep it simple. And I'm going to be stupid enough to believe that God knows more than me. And he doesn't need me to start inventing things to do things. They prayed in the home, Acts 12 and 12. He came to the house of Mary, where many were gathered together praying. So they're teaching in the home. They're eating in the home. They're having fellowship in the home. They're preaching. People are getting saved in the home. They're praying in the home. This is the simplicity of what the church is to do. They broke bread in the home. What if I told you that all over the world where the church exists, there are only house churches with two exceptions? Do you have this picture? The, the gospel's going global. This thing called the church, it's going worldwide. And all throughout the world, all the churches that exist are all house churches with two exceptions. What, what, what continents do you think are the two exceptions? Europe and where? Yeah. Churches on church buildings on every corner. It's kind of like McDonald's. Now let me tell you something about the church in Europe. There was a day when the church in Europe was producing the who's who of Christianity. The Spurgeons, the Wesleys, the Warfields, the, the Winfields, the Darbys, you know, Robert Murray McShane. Great Scottish preachers. The church in Europe is nothing like they once were. Do you know what's on the rise in Europe? House churches. House churches. And Islam is on the rise. Yeah. America. Is the church in America what it used to be? You know, every, everywhere I go and I talk to different people about the modern church, it really depends on who you talk to. Do you talk to people who believe their Bibles and nothing but their Bibles? 
you'll get one opinion. If you talk to people who believe in the bigger is better, if you talk about the people who have learned how to attract a crowd, they'll say, we're seeing churches today do things churches have never done. (coughs) I mean, until Willow Creek came on the scene, I mean, most churches were, for all practical purposes, of the Marion Hills Bible Church variety and size. Yeah. If you look at the top 20 growing churches in their countries in the world, take a guess the two fastest growing countries where the church is growing in the world. China, Africa. Beautiful. And that's the two places. All house churches. All house churches. Are there any commands given to the church that are at greater risk of being disobeyed in a larger church setting? You've probably been wondering when we're going to get around to answering that question. Yes? We're all sidetracking that. Um, explain a little about Acts 2.46 for us. Continuing daily with one part of the temple. Yeah. They would go to Solomon's portico, which was the place they hung out. And it was a very large section on the eastern side of the temple. And they, and they would go there. When you got 3,000 people and you want them to come together, you know, you're going to need something large. Um, so they would meet there. But history tells us that um, before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, there was a great disconnect between uh, the Jewish leaders and the church. Um, and I don't want to take time to get into the disconnect, but it had to do with a military battle. There were many Jewish believers who were Christians who were getting ready to fight in a military battle, but because they believed Jesus was the Messiah, there was a disconnect, and they broke away from uh, fighting with the Jewish people in in Jerusalem against their enemy. Um, And all of a sudden, they weren't welcome, and now they were being scattered. And now all of a sudden, you have a Jerusalem church that's being persecuted. And you got Paul now who's planting churches and he's telling Christians in Rome, hey, you're indebted to these folks. We got to there's there's at least three references in the epistles where Paul is saying we've got to send money to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Why were they poor? Well, because they were so ostracized because of their faith. They couldn't earn a living. They were they were being persecuted. Um, But they would get together in the temple. But that was short lived. Um, So let's ask this question. Are there any commands given to the church that are at great risk of being disobeyed in a larger church setting? I'd like to direct your attention to 1 Corinthians 14 and 26. 1 Corinthians 14 and 26. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble... Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. How many have the word let in let all things be done? It's a present imperative verb. I'm sorry? 
Not what? The grammar plus. Not yet. Well, I'll tell you what it means. A present imperative. A present imperative verb. What is an imperative? It's a command. So here's what a present imperative verb means. This command is never to stop being obeyed. That's what a present imperative verb is. We got a command. Present means don't ever stop obeying this. What is it, according to that verse, that should never be stopped when we assemble? <coughs> each one, each one has a sound, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification or for building up. Listen to Ephesians 4 and 16. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So we got two separate churches here. We got the Ephesian assembly. We got the Corinthian assembly. And Paul's virtually saying the same thing to both of them. And here's what he's saying. Everybody in the assembly has got to be participating. Back up to 1 Corinthians 12 and 7 for a moment. 1 Corinthians 12 and 7. How many have these words in 1 Corinthians 12 and 7? To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So you're starting to see that when Paul writes about body life, assembly life, church life, local church life, he's describing a coming together where each person is participating. Each person is participating. Um, you got to the point I was thinking about. Those other verses that you were referring to was talking about using your spiritual gifts for the common good of the local body. Everybody. Sure. That yeah. is, that's one of his main teachings. So let me ask you this question. When What happens when the workforce is monumentally larger than the work? Let's leave the church for a moment. Let's just talk about the state of Illinois. The, the workforce is a lot larger than the work. What happens? Unemployment sets in, right? Unemployment sets in. Unemployment has set into the church. You know what the larger church has created? Spectator Christianity. The larger church has created spectator Christianity where you get to do church on Sunday. You get to assemble with brothers and sisters in Christ. And really all you got to do is come sit down and watch the professionals do their stuff. You really didn't do anything other than sit down. You didn't. Well, they want you to do that. But they, you didn't really participate in the assembly. Not the way we just read in 1 Corinthians 20, 14 and 26. Not the way we read in 1 Corinthians 12. Let, let me share with you what I've seen happen to the church on Sunday. It's become a production, not a participation. 
it's really become a production, not a participation. And, and now we start to evaluate church by how good was the production. And the better the music, the better the production. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the better this, the better the production. No participation at all. In case I forgot, let me remind you, this is a command. We are commanded when we assemble together to participate. We are not allowed, biblically speaking, to assemble and sit soak and sour. We're not. But if church has all these layers on what a Sunday morning church service ought to be, and nobody really knows what lies behind the layers, because for most people, what they experience on Sunday is what they experience. They don't know any better. Nobody's ever had a class in the church called ecclesiology. Ecclesia is the Greek word for assemble, church. Ology, study of. Put the two together, the study of the church. Most people have never been introduced to ecclesiology, the study of the church. What should church be like when you come together? Jesus wants the each part church. Jesus wants the each one church. Jesus wants the every part supplies what is needed. You see, Greg, you have things I need. I have things you need. Marcy has things Lauren needs. Lauren has things Marcy needs. And we can go around the room. And and if you can't imagine, well, what do I got to offer? (coughs) If there's a Christian sitting in a pew saying, well, what contribution can I make to the participation? That in and of itself is a problem. (coughs) Most people are never challenged. You know, if I don't want to do anything, if I don't want to ever be asked to do anything, you know where's the best place to hang out? In a large church. I can get lost in a large church. And listen, what did I ask? What was the sixth thing? How do we know when big is too big? I don't want you to be thinking of these mega churches when I'm talking like this. I don't want you thinking of you know, Willow Creek or Harvest Bible Chapel or um, what's that church we were at last week? High Point. You could be 75 and, and, and yeah. sneak in and sneak out and nobody will ever say a word to you. You, you can get away with it. Why? Because for the most part, most of the people in the church don't even understand this each one command. Jesus is looking for participation, not a production. Why? Why, why would this be an important first place to begin by asking the question, are there any commands 
given to the local church that are at greater risk of being disobeyed in a larger church setting. Why would this be a good first place to begin? They don't want you to participate. <laughs> well, that that could be too. Well, they may want you to ask a question. They want you to participate. Well, yeah, but I mean, they want to control your participation. I'm not sure they care one way or the other. And I think that's also true, Lord. As long as people come and pretend to listen. And maybe. It's all part of the money. money. Yeah, money. And put yeah. what? Money. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what happens when you get like three thousand people putting money in the coffers? You get a lot of money. And now the question becomes, okay, there's this thing in church life called the budget. It's called the budget. You know, and we're going to start to talk about the budget, but a biblical budget. When you think about how much money is spent on the brick, And then you start to compare how much of God's money is really being invested in the two categories that God is commanding in his word, his money be invested in. I like to know what part of the pie is really going towards the two categories and how much of the money is going towards. Because it's not cheap to own a building. And the bigger the building Chances are the bigger the expense. The air conditioning bill, the heating bill, the cleaning bill, the landscaping bill, the new roof bill, the new air conditioning unit bill. It's expensive. What is God really thinking about his money going towards things he's never commanded his church to do. I'm sorry? You don't even know what is a layer because I would venture to say, Bob, most people don't even know what the layers are because this is probably not Something a big church would want to talk about, would they? So many generations have passed since the original churches, so it's, it's a lost, it's a lost understanding. Mm-hmm. So if you skip five, six, eight generations, and now here's what a church is, that's just what people know a church to be. Exactly. In and of itself, it's not that it's bad; it's just how it's growing. It's a distraction of business. So you can have all this other busyness and it takes away from what the actual yeah. thing should be, the center focus of what it's about, not, you know, oh, we got all this other stuff we have to do, and it's created around that. Yeah. And the other stuff can become those layers mm-hmm. that keep you from really, I'll never forget when John MacArthur said this. I remember the quote. I use the quote. It's every pastor's dream to pastor a church like the church in the book of Acts. I don't know that it's every pastor's dream, to be honest with you. pastors don't have that dream. They don't have that dream. They don't even know it. And he said that. Well, I don't know that John's church was ever that big. The Grace Community? Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. 
Well, it really doesn't have that many in attendance. Well, but I mean, the, the church itself is the building holds thousands of people. Yeah. A couple of thousand. I mean, I've seen pictures of it on you know, you watch YouTube. You yeah. see the churches. It's a big auditorium. You Not see, like Olsen, the Bible, the Bible has this doctrine. It's called accountability. Responsibility. And most people don't want to be accountable or responsible to participate. I mean, we, we in this room have enough experience in, from where we came <coughs> to know that when Lori and Fran and Karen and, and a couple other ladies are in the kitchen cleaning all the pots and pans and dishes, right? It was always the same women all the time. Um, and by the way, men can wash dishes too, right? And men could and men could put men could put pots and pans away and wipe them down too. But but most people, if if they observe in church life, it seems to be the same people over and over again doing the lion's share of whatever. Whatever that church has invented that needs to be done, it seems to be the same folk for the most part. Are you are you nodding your head, Karen, in agreement or, or just okay? So so you know if 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 whatever your spiritual gift is, you you know what gift a lot of people don't want to claim they have? The gift of helps. You, you know what the gift of helps is? Help! And that person, what do you need? And and they're almost the whatever it is, count me in person. You know, um, this is going to be an eye-opening series because it's really going to challenge us to examine in the light of God's word what God wants his church to be and maybe what we've been exposed to unknowingly, not even realizing that what we've been exposed to is foreign to the scriptures. When did the churches start to grow, like into churches? At what era, per se? You know, like it, it would make sense as you're reading the Bible when it starts. It's not like all of a sudden, you know, here's real estate, here's buildings. It, that's it just grew day it's, one. Three thousand people. I'm not referring to just the numbers of people. I'm referring to like when it started to drift, say, out of homes or out of gathering places or into um, buildings dedicated for. Are you talking about the true church or are you talking about the counterfeit church? Because there's well, two well, separate let's answers. The, let's go with the church that came out of the apostles. There's probably the disciples of the apostles, Irenaeus, Polycarp, all those guys. Yeah. Did they have church buildings? Well, what they started to do as their numbers grew is they started to build uh, an annex adjacent to their homes. They so what to they accommodate the size? Yeah, they they actually built something adjacent to their home. They didn't get away from the house church, but what they did is they they enlarged their home in order to accommodate. Now, do you do you remember when Eutychus, or do you remember when do you remember when the church? Met in a home in Acts 1 for 10 days 
before the Holy Spirit came. Does anyone recall how many people were in attendance? 120. In a home. Now you know why guys like Eutychus can fall out a window. I mean, they were they were they were sandwiched in. You know, I mean, as I look around this floor and everything, I mean, if 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 Jesus, let me ask you a question: If Jesus came next Sunday, he was teaching. I mean, he forget about Campo. Campo's he's sitting on the filing cabinet over there. <laughs> Jesus is sitting here. The microphone is is on. Jesus is teaching. How many more people could we sandwich in here for Jesus? You probably, you would probably have no problem squeezing a few more folk in here, right? So I don't know how many people, when you count, when you go to Romans chapter 16, and I would encourage you to do this, go to Romans chapter 16, because here's what Paul does. He starts ringing off by name all the people in the church. Yeah, give greetings to Rufus. Give, give greetings to Chloe. Give, give, I mean, he's ringing off all the names. You get a feel for how many people were in that house church. There wasn't a lot of people. And he even hints in Romans 16 when he's ringing off all these names. There's a couple other house churches in Rome other than the one that met in, you know, Prisca and Aquila's place. So did the... Did the did Peter go and preach to each one, or was there preachers in each one? Well, Paul was the lone teacher in the seven churches in Asia. So what did they do? He didn't go to each church every Saturday. Every Saturday. No, no, they didn't. See, that's the other thing. That's the other thing. We think that the only way you can have church is if you have a campo. Me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got to remember something. When, when Paul established churches on his first missionary journey, and then he proceeded with the gospel beyond there, he then came back on his second missionary journey, and he returned to those churches. Does anyone recall what he did when he returned? He appointed what? Elders in those churches. So that tells me that for that duration in time, between the church, what is the church? People. The people. Are you a church if you don't have a pastor? No. Yes. Yes, you're a church even if you don't have a pastor. Even if you don't have any elders yet. Because the church is the church because it's the redeemed of God. And when the redeemed of God assemble together, you're the church. And the spirit of God is here. By the way, the Corinthians had no elders. And he referred to the church that meets in, in their home. They were a very sinful bunch, the Corinthians. They, they didn't have, remember when they had a lawsuit? They were suing each other. And Paul says, you mean to tell me you don't even have one wise man between you that can judge between the brethren? They didn't even have one wise guy. They didn't even, they didn't have elders, but they were a church. Which makes me think that's why. Heresy crept in so early because there wasn't someone to oversee to say this is the correct doctrine. This is not exactly. So you had letters circulating, you know, and you got to remember they didn't have the Bible in its completeness like we do. Okay, we are far more equipped 
If, if there's no Campo here, we are far more equipped to protect ourselves than they were in the first century. You know, somebody can come along and say something, and and Lord can say, well, you know, uh, yeah, okay, uh, but you, you you hold that for a while. Well, we're going to get together. We're going to read on this thing, and you got a Bible to read on this thing. And then the men, maybe the the men come together and they discuss amongst themselves. And and remember, when Paul talks about the qualifications of an elder, he says, let them first be tested. In other words, there are men in the assembly that are rising the ladder of maturity, and they're observed, and you're and you're 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 starting to see. How Paul comes on the scene, and he senses who are the men that are really maturing in their faith. And, and they become the elders. I, I guarantee you, all the churches in the Bible, they didn't all have uh, David Jeremiah, John MacArthur, Spurgeon, D.L. They didn't have guys like that, that went to eight years of Bible college and seminary. And, and I don't think we realize how dependent the early church was on the apostles. But all these churches, nevertheless, existed. You know, and again, remember, Paul, he'd go to Corinth for 18 months. Were all the apostles planting churches? No. Mm-hmm. No, some of them stayed in Jerusalem. They were the they were the shepherds in the in the Jerusalem church. Well, even in Jerusalem, they had churches. Sure. All those houses that were, were, were gathering. Going, yeah. You just said they weren't going out. Oh. Yeah, they would go out and plant them. You know, I mean, we're going to learn that. You know, when all of a sudden you read that Lydia gets saved and her whole household. Where, where did Lydia get saved? What town? Begins with a P? Philippi. And now there's this Philippian church and it meets in her house. And you start to follow in the scriptures and you start to notice that as the gospel is being preached and people are getting saved and all of a sudden... The jailer gets saved and his entire household. And I don't think we realize how much God uses the home. So, I'm five minutes late. I'm sorry. Um, Anyway, I'm looking forward to the series. I really am. It's going to be challenging. I think for some of us, we're going to say, gee, I never thought about that. And and, and this this is something that is very different than what I've grown accustomed to. Um, okay. Well, let me close in prayer and we'll dismiss our meeting. Father in heaven, God, we don't want to...